The reading is from Titus chapter 3, verses 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Mark. Morning, Redemption Arcadia. I guess early afternoon. How are you doing? Good. Never know who's actually going to respond when I ask for a response, but I appreciate that. Uh, my name is Josh Prather. I'm one of the elders here, and I'm a pastor at Redemption Church Centrally. I oversee our community and global initiatives, and it's uh, always a privilege for me to open up the Word periodically and be able to, to preach and to teach. So pray with me, and we'll jump right into it. Father, I thank you for your Word. God, I thank you for Sundays. God, for many of us, uh, we haven't been coming very often on Sundays, so this is new to us. For many of us, we were born into it, and it's become a routine. It's become stagnant, and it doesn't have life, God. But your word has life, and there's life in you. So I pray, God, you'd wake us up, please, for the sake of your name, for the sake of your glory, and for the sake of good works being done in this community and around the world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So I kind of want to go back to Genesis 1 and 2 and talk a little bit about authority, about submission, and about good works, because it's going to kind of set the table for us moving forward into good works that we find in Titus. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see God as a king who has all authority, he is the ruler, and he creates people to submit to his loving rule and authority. And there's ways that people actually interact in Genesis 1 and 2. They're courteous with one another, they are gentle with one another, and they actually serve one another. There's good works in Genesis 1 and 2 that you see. They're being obedient to God as the ruler, and they're serving one another. But what happens in Genesis 3 severs all of it, and all of a sudden what you start to see is quarreling, you see bickering, you see people that are doing what is right in their own eyes. If you're with us through the series on Judges, that's the refrain, right? That in those days there was no king in Israel, it says in Judges, and people did what was right in their own eyes. And it says it over and over and over, and I had the, I'll call it a privilege, to preach the last sermon in that series through the book of Judges. And if you remember what actually happens when people give themselves over to themselves and do what is right in their own eyes, the book of Judges ends with the rape of hundreds of women. This is what takes place when we do not submit to God as king and as ruler, and there's no restraints put in place, and the whole nation, the whole world, does what's right in their own eyes. So, so it goes with Israel. They're not obedient, they're not doing good works, and it continues forward to where you, when you finally come to Titus, you see people longing. You come to the New Testament, you see people longing. They're longing for a king that will actually come that has sovereign good rule and authority. And you see people actually wanting to submit so what Paul does, he writes a letter and he says, this sound doctrine is not just for you. This sound doctrine is for the sake of others. It is meant to form you and shape you as a people so that you might devote yourself to good works. He says it repeatedly. We'll talk about that in a second. But this is the point of the book. How are we shaped by sound doctrine that actually takes root in life? It actually forms us as a people and moves us towards our neighbors. So if you have your Bible, 
Please flip it open to Titus, chapter three, verse eight. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. What is he saying when he says this saying is trustworthy? I think he's coming back to chapter, to chapter three, verses three through seven. And I think what he's trying to say here is this saying is trustworthy, the gospel. He's saying that you are not equipped to move forward in good works if you don't first recognize how utterly depraved you are, which Frank talked about last week. We recognize that we have nothing to bring to God. We're saved wholly by his grace, that the love and kindness of Jesus, his mercy, finds us as a people. This saying is trustworthy and true. Come back to the gospel. Because if we are not rooted in the grace of Jesus, how can we move forward in good works? It's not possible, and that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, go back. I'm going to remind you again. Paul never, Paul never disconnects good works from the gospel. He always says, if you're going to do good in this world, you must be rooted in the grace of Jesus Christ. Always Rooted, And that's why we are saved. He's saying we're not saved by our works, but we're saved by grace for the sake, verse 8, of good works. The two cannot be disconnected. He goes on to say that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Those who have believed may be careful to devote themselves to good works. It's interesting. In the Greek, when you see those who have believed, it's past. So it's saying there's a people that have believed. They've been saved by grace. They've come to Jesus. They know that they have nothing to bring to him. They have believed in Jesus. But these people are meant, future, future tense, for good works. The belief and the blessing and the salvation that God has given us as a people is not meant for us. Do you understand? It's meant for others. It's meant to be given away. You have been blessed and you have believed so that you might move forward into good works. And it's also a rebuke because if you see earlier on in the letter, Paul is saying to a people that I see a people that are teaching what is contrary to sound doctrine. And you know how I know? Not by what they're saying, what they're doing. I'm looking at their life and their life, the works that they're doing does not reflect the doctrine of the gospel. Do you see how the two must be connected? Paul is always connecting them, and he's rebuking them here, saying that if you believe in the gospel, verse three through seven of chapter three, if you believe in the gospel, it will show itself in good works. It has to, a people that are committed and devoted to good works. That word devote, I think, is incredible because usually what we like to think of in the English language is only active or passive. So we say, okay, is it God acting in us? So when we devote ourselves to good work, is it us or is it God? So some of us like to say, no, 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 you sit back and just let go of the wheel. Jesus, take the wheel. I'm sitting back, man, passive. He's going to take it. And some of us say, no, you need to work. You need to go at it. You got to do it. But here, the Greek kind of has a middle, which is what's so significant. It's saying, no, 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 that God has given us free will, and we move forward in these good works, compelled by his grace, 
not out of our own doing, out of his grace, and God meets us there. It's a meshing together of the two, that we are working because of the grace that God has given us, and then God supplies more grace, and he meets us in that place of people that are devoted to good works. And if you already haven't seen the importance of good works already, just let me take you back in Titus and talk about it just for a second. Six times Paul mentions the importance of good works in Titus. You see in chapter 1, verse 1, that Paul is saying that he has been set apart by God. I am a doulos. I am a servant. I'm a bondservant of God for the sake of the faith of God's elect. I have been saved by God to do good works. And it is certainly not just for Paul. It's for all of us. That's why God saved you. He didn't save you to sit here. If we sat here every single day and it's all we did, we would be disobedient. We come here for a short amount of time to sync up on the gospel and then leave this place for the sake of our neighbor, for the glory of God and the good works that he has predestined that we should walk in them, as Ephesians would say. And Paul doesn't stop there. Chapter 1, verse 8, he says, elders in churches should be lovers of good. Chapter 1, verse 16, he says, this is what he's saying about the people that are teaching what's contrary to sound doctrine. He's saying, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Unfit for any good work. If you are not rooted in the grace of Jesus, if you're not rooted in sound doctrine, you are unfit for good works. And how do you know if someone is not rooted in the grace of Jesus Christ? You look at their life. I look at your works. I say, your works should reflect the doctrine and the gospel that you believe. And if you believe and you're rooted in Jesus, it will eventually, it's not immediate, but eventually it will gradually move you into good works that God has for you. He goes on, chapter 2, verse 7. He's saying you need to teach others to be a model of good works. He's saying older men teach the younger men. Older women teach younger women. He's giving this list of things. He's saying you need to teach them to be a model of good works. Chapter 2, verse 14, can't say it better. I have set apart a people, I've saved a people who are zealous, he says, <laughs> zealous for good works. So I hope you see the importance of good works connected to the grace of God in the book of Titus. But I think sometimes there's a disconnect for us in the Western church when we talk about good works. I think sometimes we have a divide between what we think is sacred and what we think is secular, or we have a divide between what I'd say is the physical world and the spiritual world. And Carl Ellis would say this, a theologian that I really, really love, he says, the dysfunctionality of conservative churches is due in part to the nature of Western theology itself. It was much more concerned, or is much more concerned, with epistemological issues, that is, what we should know about God, it's much more concerned with epistemology, what we know about God, than it is with ethical issues, how we should obey, what we actually do. Teach them, Matthew 28, to obey all that I've commanded you. Carl Ellis is saying the Western church has been captivated by a theology that gives us more content to know but doesn't transform life 
And Paul, in chapter two, as he's giving the list, isn't it incredible that he says, here is sound doctrine, and I want older men, teach this to younger men. Older women, teach this to younger women. And does he give you things to know? No, he gives you things to do. He's saying, here's what it is to obey. When you're rooted in the gospel, here's what it looks like. Here's how it actually takes shape. He's shaping a people in chapter two. Martin Luther King states, the gospel at its best deals with the whole man, not only his soul, but also his body, not only his spiritual well-being, but also his material well-being. In other words, a religion that professes a concern for souls of men and is not equally concerned about the slums that damn them and the economic conditions that enstrangle them and the social conditions that cripple them is a spiritually morbid religion. And where do we see this? We see it in Jesus. We see that the spiritual, 100% spiritual, became 100% physical. The 100% sacred, the word, what we know, became 100% flesh, became ethics among us, and actually obeyed and lived. It took root into real life. There's so many things that we could discuss when it comes to good works. So many different things, but I want to use the context of chapter 3 to kind of help that be a grid for how we can obey and what good works look like. So if you have your Bible, chapter 3, verse 1, if you want to read along with me. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil to no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. I was talking to Frank Switzer the other day, and if you don't know this, you're new to Redemption Church. Frank is the lead pastor of Redemption Arcadia, and normally you'll be hearing from him, so maybe once a month, once every two months, I'll be up here speaking, but Frank's usually the guy you'll be hearing from. And he was telling me that he's never seen a presidential race like this. It's been more polarizing than he's ever seen. There's been more people in the public square not being courteous, quarreling with one another, not being gentle with one another, not submitting to rulers and authorities than he's ever seen. seen. And here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to get into which person to vote for. I don't want to get into their policies. I want to get into how we actually live in light of it. Because if I was to take a poll in this room and I said, hey, what do you think about Donald Trump? What do you think about Hillary Clinton? I wonder what your responses would be. Or if I was to go back to your tweets, if I was to go back to your Facebook, if I was to put a microphone in your home, would I see that your language as you're talking about them with your family, with your kids, has it been courteous? Has it been gentle? Has it been honoring to them? First Peter would say, honor everyone. Honor everyone. Is it filled with love? Is that what we would see? Eugene Scott was just in town. Eugene Scott is a reporter for CNN.com. He's a good friend. He used to work here at Redemption Arcadia, and he had David Massey's job, and in my opinion, did it far better, if I'm being honest. But... No, he's become a, a good friend. So when, he's in, when he was in town, we were sitting down talking about this because he's covering politics for, 
for CNN. And I said, what do you think? Just in all the conversations that have been happening, what are you getting from this? What are you thinking about this? And Eugene had some great thoughts. He said, we don't speak well of our next door neighbors, our brothers, or our spouses. How can we expect to speak well of someone in authority that we don't even know or like? He said this, I think we forget that Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are fearfully and wonderfully made, that they're image bearers of God. And if they're image bearers of God, that means that there's something in them to honor. It's actually there. Every human being has something in them because they're created in God's image that we can look at and we can honor and we can respect. He said, from what I've seen, evangelical Christians are bashing more than they're praying. When's the last time you've prayed and honored Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton? When's the last time you've thanked God for them? Because what we learn from Romans is that God is the one who actually appoints rulers and authorities. It's not us, as much as we'd like to think it is. It is God who appoints these rulers and authorities. And unless something changes, which it could, we are going to have to submit as a people to the rule and the authority underneath God, ultimately being the rule and authority, but one of these presidential candidates. We will have to love Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton unless something radically changes. It's our call as a people. And what does that even look like? It becomes challenging for us to even imagine. I think of Dr. Martin Luther King, Dr. King was a minister and a civil rights activist in the uh, 50s and 60s, incredible man, and he was uh, leading civil rights at a time of Jim Crow segregation. If you're not familiar with Jim Crow, it was a time when restaurants, schools, public spaces was divided among whites and blacks. And in his interaction, in his living this out in the public space, was he quarrelsome? Was he gentle? What was the way in which he conducted himself? The movement started, he would say, following Jesus. Trying to follow Jesus, trying to be submissive to rulers and authorities, but knowing that God had called them to good works. As a minister, God had called me to good works, and I had to obey God first. Here's something that he said. I would seek to arouse the group to action by insisting that their self-respect was at stake and that if they accepted such injustices without protesting, they would betray their own sense of dignity and the eternal edicts of God himself. But, but I would balance this with a strong affirmation of the Christian doctrine of love, gentleness, courtesy, it's said about his relationship with Lyndon Johnson that they would talk often. They have a ton of phone conversations with them. That's a good thing. When you're preparing for a sermon, you can research great things like this. And their conversations were courteous. He was courteous, right? While he's leading a movement that is being very disruptive to someone that is trying to keep order in a nation, but he's trying to submit, he's talking, he's reasoning. He's trying to be courteous, but he's trying to be obedient to the Lord first. And he also was really impacted by Gandhi and Gandhi's approach to nonviolent protest, largely because he saw Jesus in Gandhi. 
Not that Gandhi was a believer, I don't wanna go into that, but what I do wanna say is the way that Jesus conducted himself, Martin Luther King saw Gandhi and said, maybe this is a way that those that are oppressed can conduct themselves, to be courteous, to be gentle, to not quarrel, but to seek justice. Just because we are submissive as a people doesn't mean we roll over and play dead, and it doesn't mean that we don't have a voice. It's the way in which we conduct ourselves and have a voice. It's an incredible story in Birmingham, Alabama, where a couple hundred African Americans gathered together to do a peaceful, nonviolent, quiet protest in front of the courthouse. And they gathered together, they were praying, and at this time, Bull Connor was actually in power. And if you know who Bull Connor is, he was the commissioner of public safety during the civil rights movement in Birmingham, Alabama. And it was said of him that he had a close relationship with the Ku Klux Klan, and he would leave sometimes 15 to 20 minutes if there was an altercation between the Ku Klux Klan and between an African-American peaceful protest. He would leave about 15 to 20 minutes just for the Ku Klux Klan to do what it needed to do before he'd show up. He said, it's said that he ruled by fear, first and foremost. So hoses turned on people, dogs turned on people, it was common, it was commonplace. And this is the man that meets this peaceful protest. This is the man that meets hundreds of African Americans that are trying to protest peacefully in the midst of Jim Crow segregation. And they're confronted by Bull Connor and they drop to their knees and they pray and they start to sing. And one of the men, one of the men that's actually leading it, a minister, Bull Connor says to him, you need to turn back. And he politely, courteously, gently says, we can't do that. And he drops to his knees, and they pray, and they sing, and a woman stands up and says, if you need to take us to jail, that's fine, but we're not going anywhere. And Bull Connor is furious at this time, and he commands everybody. There's firefighters, there's police officers. He says, let go of the dogs, sick the dogs on them. He says, open the hoses, and at this range, the hoses would have broken people's ribs. And he's commanding everybody to do it. But something miraculous happens, is that nothing happens. They stand up and they move forward. And it's said that the officers, the policemen that were there were so moved by the nonviolent protest, these people were willing to be beaten and bruised, standing in front of a man who was known to be abusive, standing in front of a man who was known to act in this way, and they dropped to their knees, they were courteous, they were gentle, they were polite. What fuels such a movement but Jesus? And that's what these officers saw. That's what they saw in it. It's an incredible moment, but there's also some things that we as a church have to recognize in the midst of it. Carl Ellis says this, and he's got an incredible book called Free at Last, The Gospel and the African-American Experience. If you're interested to learn more about this, he says, the ultimate tragedy of Birmingham was not the brutality of bad people like Bull O'Connor, but the silence of good white Christians. Let me read that one more time. The ultimate tragedy of Birmingham was not the brutality of bad people like Connor, but the silence of good white Christians. Carl Ellis says this, Sadly, many white evangelical fundamentalists and reformed churches were caught sleeping with no oil in their lamps at this great outbreak of the move of God in the land. They eventually, they evidently been rendered dysfunctional 
by a defective view of theology and culture. What he's saying is a dysfunctional view of the spiritual and the physical, of epistemological issues that transform our mind with sound doctrine, but must take root in ethics. It must take root in good works. They failed to distinguish between white standards and scriptural standards, is what Carl Ellis is saying. Their theology had led them to be preoccupied with private salvation. And I really want you to hear this. I really want you to please. The importance of private salvation should not be diminished. But the whole counsel of God revealed in the scriptures goes far beyond the scope of the private realm. We've given over our faith to a private realm that transforms our sins, takes us to heaven when we die, and we coast when God says, that's not why I saved you. You were born again for the sake of your neighbor. Look next to you. You're born again for good works. Grace has transformed our life, and we bring glory to God by moving forward and loving our neighbor, moving forward and loving the least of these. I think of SB 1316, a bill that was just put into the Senate a few months ago here in Arizona. And this bill, so there's some semantics here, but pretty much it was recognized that this bill is pretty much predatory lending. If you're not familiar with predatory lending is, it's giving massively high interest loans to, to the working poor to put them in a place to where they can never come out of debt, never come out of poverty. So Denae Pierre, who leads the Surge Network, which we're a part of. It's a network of 35 churches here in Phoenix, in Arizona, across Arizona. And she gathered pastors together and said, what if we spoke out against this? What if we did it with gentleness? What if we did it not wanting to quarrel? What if we did it with courtesy? What if we did it with love? Seeking the good of our neighbor, seeking to love the poor, to love the vulnerable, what if this is what God was calling us to do, to be obedient? And she did it. And she gathered hundreds of pastors together, I, I was one of them, to sign this and give it, and give it and say, this is the stance of evangelical leaders. This is the stance of the local church. Just so you know, this is where we stand, and we would love it if you would reconsider. We say it in gentleness, we say it in respect, we say it in courtesy to you but we would love it if you would reconsider your place. And she had conversations back and forth, and eventually, I just talked to her two, day, two days ago, and eventually, the bill didn't move forward. Now, was it actually her that did it, or this? I think it had a piece in it. I think it had a piece in it. And these are just visuals of what it looks like for us. How are we submissive in a time that is so divisive? We're quarreling is the norm in the public square especially with two presidential candidates that are so polarizing. How do we actually move forward and love our neighbor? How do we transform policy? How do we actually do good works and be obedient? I think Denae Pierre and Martin Luther King are onto something. Andy Crouch says this, seeking the common good in its deepest sense means continually insisting that persons are of infinite worth, worth more than any system, any institution, any cause. Societies, hear this. Societies are graded on a curve with the fate of the most vulnerable given the most weight. 
because the fate of the most vulnerable tells us whether a society truly values persons as ends or just means to the end. The most vulnerable in our society, church, are forgotten. African Americans in the 50s and the 60s were brushed aside. The working poor so often today is brushed aside. They don't have a voice. Who is it today? And don't, please, do not kid yourself to think that the vulnerable are not among us. That was just something of the past. No, we saw it in Napier. It's not something of the past. It's something that happens today. And God is calling us as a church to say, I have saved you by grace. I have equipped you. I've called you for the purpose of the most vulnerable in this world that needs you. That's why you exist as a people, for the most vulnerable in this world. But once again, this is just a glimpse It's just a shadow because there's another story that's more supremely amazing than these two because what we see with Denae Pierre is we see a woman gathering pastors together to care for the working poor. What we see with Martin Luther King is trying to bring division, or not trying to bring division, (laughs) trying to bring unity in the midst of division in a segregated nation. But then we hear of another story We have a story of a man who actually brought unity and harmony to the world. We hear of a man that had all rule and authority, yet he laid it down for the sake of the vulnerable, and we're the vulnerable. If you have your Bible, flip with me to John 18, starting in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus, and he said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? This is when Jesus had already been handed over. He'd been betrayed by Jesus, and now he's standing before the ruler and authority of the time, which is Pilate, having this conversation. He said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this for your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. What Jesus is saying is that Dene Pierre, Martin Luther King, others are onto something that our role is not to pick up the sword, that time is not now. The time for the church is to lay down your life for your neighbor in the way of Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting. He's not saying it doesn't connect to this world. Jesus is saying my kingdom is bigger. It's not just, it's not just about this, it's about the cosmos. It's about everything. My kingdom, my authority, my rule is over everything. I told you a story at the beginning from Genesis 1 and 2. I said that there was a God, and he had all rule, he had all authority, and he had loyal subjects underneath him. Recognize that that God that I speak of is Jesus Christ. He is the king of kings. And he's saying, my kingdom, coming back to Genesis 1 and 2, the kingdom that I establish is not just this physical world. It's the spiritual world. It's the cosmos. Everything is underneath me. And if this was just my kingdom, this world, my servants would be fighting. 
And then, and then Pilate says this, so you say that I am, oh, excuse me, oh, right here. I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then Pilate said to him, what is truth? Verse 38, I think what's so incredible about this is if you know the story of Jesus, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. What is truth? And truth is staring Pilate right back in the face. I am the truth, staring at you. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man to you at Passover. So do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Jesus knew no sin. He was perfect. Martin Luther King Jr. was not perfect. The Napier was not perfect. They were empowered by Jesus to do the work that he had called them to do. Here you're staring at a man that is perfection in the flesh. 100% God, 100% man, and the people he came for do not accept him. They're handing him over and they're taking a robber. They're taking a man who is actually guilty and the king of kings who has all authority is handed over. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him and the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. They are mocking the only man in human history who's worthy of the robe. Jesus is the only one who can actually put on the robe and receive all glory, all honor, and all praise. But in his submission to rulers and authorities, he gives it over. In his courtesy, in his gentleness, in a good work that will transform the whole of human history and adopt us into the family of God. He allows himself, he submits himself to the point of being mocked. Pilate said to them, behold the man, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to the law, he ought to die because he has made himself out to be God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Pilate thought Jesus was the king, the messianic king that was promised for the Jews, and he was. But then he comes to the Jews and they say, no, 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 he's making himself out to be the king, the one and only king the king of heaven and earth, the king that we speak of, Yahweh in the Old Testament, the one that rules the nations, the one that's coming back to win the nations. That's what Jesus is claiming. So Pilate's afraid, and he comes back in and he speaks to Jesus. He speaks to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. 
Jesus hands over his authority so that he could be crucified. Pilate claims the authority that can only be given by Jesus. I said before that God appoints rulers and authorities. Jesus is God. He appointed Pilate and he gave over his authority and submitted to Pilate so that a good work of obedience could be done that transforms the human race and transforms the world for all eternity. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. At least they recognize that Jesus is making himself out to be the king. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, and he sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement, and an Aramaic Gabbatha, now it was the day of preparation in the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold, your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Jesus came for a people, first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. He came for a people to regather a people to himself. He said, you've been astray. And I've come for you, finally. I'm here. What you've always prayed for, what you've always longed for, people, come to me. And they said, we don't have a king but Caesar. Not only did they, did they deny him, they handed him over to be crucified. How do we actually do good works, church? How do we actually move forward? We have to first reflect on the gospel of grace. And here is the gospel of grace made flesh that Jesus submits to rule and authority and courtesy and gentleness, and he's handed over to be crucified, a work that you and I could never do. So if we want to do good works, we must come here first. We find our place in him, and then we move forward. But there's something we have to remember, because good works are hard. Martin Luther King Jr. lost his life. Denae Pierre, I've talked about some of the conversations she's had. Let's put it this way. They haven't all been sweet and comforting and kind and cordial. There's been some quarreling, not on her end, but on other people. Jesus lost his life. And I'm almost certain if God calls you and you move forward to good works, you're going to lose your life. Maybe not physically, but daily, you're going to have to lay it down. And what's, why is it worth it? We have to ask this question. Why is it even worth it? Why do we do this? At the end of verse 8, it says, these things are profitable for people. These good works are profitable. The gospel that we reflect on that leads to good works are profitable for people. They are profitable for all people, but I want to talk individually to each one of you. Why is it profitable for you? Because when you do good works and you lay down your life, as Martin Luther King Jr. did, as 200 African Americans were ready to do, as Dene Pierre was ready to do, as Jesus did, Jesus meets you there. Isn't it incredible that as you lay down your life in good works, you get to be with Jesus? And I'm not saying you don't have him now. I'm not saying that, but as Paul says, I partake in his sufferings and good works and I see him. He's revealed to me and I see him face to face. What's veiled becomes unveiled when I'm suffering in good works and I see Jesus. Finally, he's standing in front of me. But if you don't love him, why would you do it? 
We do not do good works to fill our own bag of merit. We do not do good works to gain. We do good works to get Jesus because he's there. He's there in our good works, church. If you move forward with it, you get to be with him. He's with you now for those that have believed, but I'm telling you, and anybody else who's suffered and done good works would tell you, it's not easy, but the reward of seeing and fellowshipping and being with Jesus far surpasses anything that you could ask or imagine. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, I'm grateful for Jesus, God. He's our life. He's our purpose. God, he's why we live. He's why we move. He's why we have our being in him. We find our hope. We find our happiness. We find our joy. Not what he does for us, but he himself. God, we come to find him and to be with him and to fellowship with him. Father, I pray that you would speak to each one of us. Each person in here, you've set apart for good works and you predestined them to walk in those good works and that's what I pray for, that they would do so. Powered by your grace, empowered by the gospel. In the name of Jesus, amen.